If you would stand for me now for the reading of God's word, I feel like I need to sit down <laughs> because it's a doozy. Rem I just need to remind you of one thing. Uh, if you recall, as we were talking about this, you know, preaching through Daniel, that Daniel's name given to him in captivity is Belteshazzar. Right, you'll hear that name and wonder, who is that? All right. <clears throat> I, Nebuchadnezzar, contented and prosperous, had a dream that made me afraid. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream. But they could not. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. I said, Belteshazzar, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, from it, every creature was fed. I looked, and there before me was a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Let the stump and its roots remain in the ground. Let him live with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. <laughs> then Daniel was greatly perplexed and his thoughts terrified him. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies. The tree you saw, your majesty, you are that tree. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, saying, Cut down the tree, but leave the stump. Let him live with the wild animals, until seven times pass by for him. This is the decree of the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. The command to leave the stump means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Perhaps there may be a way to lengthen, of lengthening your prosperity. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. His hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. 
No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were, were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise the king of heaven because everything he does is right and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is God's word. Almighty God, bless our hearing and bless the lips of he who speaks today, enlightening our understanding of this message, of this passage, uh, to your glory, because you are certainly the God most high over all, everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, thank you, friends. You can be seated. We can turn the lights on, too. It, we, we were turning them off because there was some weird buzz in the speakers, and I think we fixed it. So there you go. Is that better? Now I can see you. A little brighter. You know, kind of. That's all right. There we go. Good. Okay. <clears throat> I hope that you all um, received one of these on your way in. We're taking communion at the end of the service, and this is sort of our um, um, COVID germ-friendly version of it um, as as we do it um, this morning. <clears throat> it's a delight to uh, return with you the day after Christmas. How's everyone feeling? A little full? Too much cheesecake? Too much lasagna? If for some of us it's not over yet, and maybe you have a party or two to go to today. But um, I'm just so glad to be with you. Um, and having gone through um, our Advent sermon series during Christmas was just a treat um, in studying the birth of Christ and now, if, you're, if you are new with us this morning, we're going back to um, what, was our, what was our study of the book of Daniel, which is an Old Testament uh, prophet. So we're going back to that this morning and picking up in chapter 4. <clears throat> now, um, we're trying to go, there's 12 chapters in the book of Daniel, we're trying to preach through an entire chapter in one sermon. So that's why we, we read um, a large chunk of the chapter to you, and we didn't read the whole thing because it would have been a lot lengthier than it already was. Uh, but we, did want, we do want you to get to, to understand what is the flow of the story and the narrative of the book of Daniel. And just as a little bit of review, if you recall, Daniel is set in a time where Israel has been sacked by Babylon. Um, it's long after King David, so if you're familiar with King David and David and Goliath and all this, it's long after that. Many, many, many kings have passed. Um, and <clears throat> Daniel... <clears throat> Was in, um, was in Israel, in Jerusalem, when the king of Babylon, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took many of the Jewish people into Babylon, into slavery. Uh, Daniel and his friends were recruited into the inner court of the king because of their brilliance, because of their youthfulness, um, and their influence over, <coughs> excuse me, and their influence over the nation of Israel and the potential influence that they could have in making Israel into Babylonians. <coughs> Excuse me. The last time we spoke from Daniel, it was in chapter 3, and some of you, if you're a little familiar with the Bible, you may have heard of the story of the three Hebrew boys getting thrown into the fiery furnace, and they were unharmed, and they emerged unscathed. And that's sort of where we left off last time. So it's a delight to return to our study of this book. As I said, we pick up from chapter 3 with these three, um, Daniel's three friends emerging from the furnace. And chapter 4 closes the portion of the book of Daniel that includes King Nebuchadnezzar. So it, historically, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon is eventually conquered by the Persians. And when the Persians conquer the Babylonians, their kingdom begins to rule and they acquire all of the slaves of Israel in that conquer, in that um, in that conquest, so Daniel ends up being uh, a sort of wise man in the court of the Persians after the Babylonians, and that's next week. That's chapter five, but all all four of these chapters sort of center around Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in the book of Daniel as a whole, basically what the message of Daniel is about is that this world is ruled by the King of Kings, God Almighty. God created the world. He sets up princes and removes them. We, if you recall what we read this morning, is that even, even though this is hard to understand and we see injustices in our world, everything God does is right. 
He has never done anything unjust or wrong. He has allowed princes to rule this world. They choose to do things that are wicked and evil, and then God displaces them. But ultimately, the message of Daniel is that God is king, not just of this world, but of me. Right? He owns all things. And he eventually is going to bring all things back to what was the intent, their created purpose, and that is to live in paradise with him. So in Daniel, we have a 30,000-foot perspective of God's plan for his creation, why he made us, where he's leading us, the purpose of our existence. We see it again in chapter 4. We see this very simple message. God loves a very wicked king. Now, we don't like this about God oftentimes. We don't like it when God shows that he loves wicked people. Isn't that true? We want him to love good people like us. We don't like him to love wicked people. So we see this, this scene in which God is pursuing and loving a wicked king who destroyed Israel, burnt the temple to the ground, and then, then brought all of the Israelites into slavery. Why on earth would God love someone that is so wicked? But the message of Daniel is very simple, that God is after even the wicked. He gives him one opportunity, that is King Nebuchadnezzar, one opportunity after another to humble himself and turn to the king of creation. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought that his kingdom was the all-encompassing king of, of the earth. He was proud. And what we learn from him is that though he is wicked, we share in his malady. We share in his sin. We say we're good, but we're just as sinful and proud as he is. And we'll get to that in a moment. So we learn this message. We read it loud and clear. I hope that you heard it. He, Daniel says to the king, he says, Renounce your sin by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Perhaps, oh, isn't that a great word? Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Perhaps is the title of our service today, our sermon. Perhaps when you hear the good news of Jesus Christ, you'll repent of your sin and have life. Perhaps not. It's a hopeful, yet a terrifying word, because it presumes a choice that we all have to make, perhaps. We might choose the Lord. Perhaps we'll choose the King of creation. Perhaps we'll love the Savior and the Bridegroom and, ex and accept his extended invitation for us to enter into his paradise. Or perhaps we'll continue to demand our own independence will continue to presume our own self-importance. You see, we're left with a choice. And the sermon is about that word, perhaps. It's available to all of us. And hopefully this morning in this narrative and the story of Daniel, we'll see the grace of God as it's sort of typified in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the interpretation, the fulfillment, and the restoration Hopefully through this narrative we'll get an image of what is the grace of God through Christ. But this chapter, chapter 4, it's laser focused on the, on the king. God is after him. This is the last chapter about him. God loves this evil despot just as much as he does anyone that's lost that we might consider good, like a Catholic grandmother or a Lutheran grandfather. Both share the same malady sometimes that they think, they presume that they're good enough, that they can work out their, their own way to heaven. And they don't lean on the grace of God or the salvation of his Christ. So the, the chapter begins and ends, by the way, with a statement of God's sovereign power. Verse 3, it says this. How great are his signs. By the way, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. How great are his signs, and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. The chapter ends with basically the same declaration in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways are just, 
and those who walk in pride, he will, he will be able to put down. So the, the message of chapter 4 is sort of sandwiched in between these two declarations, that he is mighty, he is wonderful, his kingdom is everlasting, mine is finite, that's the presumption, he rules forever, I rule for a little while. His generation and dominion is from generation to generation. But I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise him, he doesn't praise me. Mm. I extol and honor the king of heaven, he doesn't extol and honor me. All of his works are truth. Some of mine might be true, but all of his are true. You see, friends, this theme is repeated continually, not only in the book of Daniel, but all throughout the Bible, that God rules over all creation. He is in control, and he is in charge. And I know that it's baffling, it's bewildering to us, especially when we, we look face-to-face -face with poverty and justice evil regimes and systems that just happen all throughout the world. How is it that God is sovereign and in control? How, how is that true? If he's good and he's all-powerful and he's in control, how on earth can I justify the existence of all these different things? And, and sometimes the way that I try to answer that question is, how, how, can I justify, how can I justify those injustices without the existence of a just God? that they'll never be accountable for their decisions or their actions. They'll just die and become worm food. You see, there has to be a just God that we all are accountable to, or, or injustice makes even less sense. So in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar finally realizes that, that he needs the Creator, that the Creator is the point of his life, and that he isn't the point of his life. So the king, actually, in chapter 4, when the lights finally turn on, chapter 4 is actually the king's testimony from his own pen. It's the king speaking to his nation about what the God of Israel, who the God of Israel is, and what he's done for us. Now, isn't that a, a twist, a turn of events? Because just, two, just a, a couple of chapters ago, one chapter ago, he erected a large golden statue and said, if you don't worship this statue, who, by the way, is an image of me, if you don't worship it, you're going to get thrown into a fire and we're going to execute you. So on a dime, God, God shows up to Nebuchadnezzar into, in a dream and he reveals himself to him and Nebuchadnezzar's eyes are opened. And he begins to preach the gospel to his entire nation. Isn't that incredible? Imagine, for example... The president of India suddenly waking up one day and realizing that Jesus is Lord and letting all of his nation know it. What a miracle of grace that would be to see a man who is so violently opposed to every religion but his suddenly wake up and say Jesus is good and he is Lord and I know it now. Oh, do you pray for nations? Do you pray for leaders? I hope that you will, and I hope that you can believe, just by testimony of Scripture, that God can change a man's heart with a snap of his finger, that nothing is beyond his decision or purpose. So this king writes a letter to everyone in his kingdom, and chapter 4 is the testimony about how an evil pagan despot became a follower of the God of Israel. It's how maybe even more importantly, the God of Israel followed him to the ends of the earth because he loved him. And it begins with a dream. <clears throat> but it's more than a dream. Okay? Because let's read in verse 2. I thought it good to declare, we didn't read this part at the beginning, but it says in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar says, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most God has worked for me. And what is he referring to? He's referring to the dream that God had sent him. This wasn't just a dream. It was a sign. It was a wonder that God brought to him. God is after the king. God is revealing himself to him because Nebuchadnezzar needs him. God is showing up out of his own compassion. Friends, did you know that your life is not a random string of events. God is sort of in the background 
He is the operation that's running, if you like computer language. He is in the background of the events of your life. Those events are supposed to be a message to us, speaking to us of his love for us, that he's real and that he's present and that he wants you. So God does this. He shows up in a dream. It's a sign and wonder. He's after the king, revealing himself to him because Nebuchadnezzar needs him. And friends, we need him. God is showing up in little and small ways, sometimes every single day of our lives, yet we don't see it. And the big things and the tragedies of our life, there's a message to us from the Lord. Did you know this, friends? If you know God already through Christ, do you remember when he showed up for you? Whether it was a word from a pulpit or reading the scriptures or a book that you read or a dream that you had. God showed up and you knew he loved you. And you knew he, you started to realize that he was the point and you weren't. That he was the center of the universe and that you weren't. Right? This dream wasn't simply an accident. It was God's loving pursuit of a lost man. Oh, and friend, if you don't know Jesus, I pray that tonight God disturbs your dreams. Because whatever it is that you're after in life right now is not as marvelous or wonderful as the Lord. And it can't save you. Our world and our lives sometimes seem chaotic and random. But God is the one who rules over all things. And what's more, God sends the king a dream... Did you notice this? During a time of prosperity, it says in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house. He was good. Everything was turning up Nebuchadnezzar. Mm. Right? He was just kind of happy as a clam. Everything he touched turned to gold. It says he was flourishing in his palace. Oh, this is not a time to mess my life up. Things are finally starting to really turn up in my, in my direction. He'd worked hard. And now he's admiring the view. We do this, don't we? You know, after a few years of maybe working on something, working on our house, paying off our mortgage, we kind of step back and say, wow, isn't it, isn't it awesome that I'm so awesome? <laughs> because that's kind of what we're doing when we're admiring all of our accomplishments. We're just like, I'm so glad I'm so smart and so strong and so accomplished. Because look at all that I have and look at all that I've done. We might not say that out loud, I think if we said it out loud, we might think even that it was a little wrong for us. But, but friends, don't we do it? We sort of pride ourselves in the new girlfriend that we have or the new boyfriend. There must be something wonderful about me if they're to date me, right? So Nebuchadnezzar is doing the same thing. I was at rest in my house. I'm flourishing my palace. Everything's turning up him. He'd work hard. Now he's admiring the view. He's got new palaces. He's got the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, by the way, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That was him. This dude's like the top dude. He's the ruler of the largest kingdom on earth. He's got super mystics from Israel to call on if anything confuses him. He's got everything. But not long ago, if you remember, if you read chapters 1 through 3, he's having these sort of nightmares, these night terrors. He's not in a good place. But now everything seems to be like kind of on the up and up. He hadn't learned from his past experiences with Daniel. He hadn't learned from the Lord. He just saw what happened was, what is so common to all of us, is we're in trouble. God seems to kind of show up. He gets us off the hook. And then we're like, okay, God, you just go in the other room now for a little while. I'm going to go do my thing again. And if things get rough again, maybe I'll open the door. That's sort of how we treat the Lord. This is, what Dan, this is what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was in trouble. He called on all his mystics and magicians. They couldn't help him. Then he called on Daniel, who represented the God of Israel. And Dan, Daniel did a miracle for him. And he was like, wow, isn't the God of Israel awesome? And isn't he so good? Isn't he wonderful? And then, oh, wow, look at my gold ring. Oh, I forgot about how, how awesome I am, too. I'm going to build a gold statue to myself. He so quickly forgot the messages that he was learning all throughout the book of Daniel. And it's so common to us. So John Calvin once wrote, When God wishes 
to lead us to repentance, he is compelled to repeat his blows. <laughs> right? If you know Jesus, that's just right, isn't it? Because we're just so stubborn and so forgetful that we like, oh, well, God is good, Jesus is real, and I love him. And then, then two, two months later, it's like nothing even happened. So God repeats his blows. He shows up again. And it's not to humiliate us or hurt us because he's better. He wants us to know him and love him and go after him with all of our hearts and soul and mind and strength. So God disturbs his sleep. And again, the king calls. What does he call on? Who does he call on? Daniel? Does he go to the word of God? Does he drop to his knees in prayer? No. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret interpret the dream but they couldn't he gets a horoscope taken instead of calling on the only one who just a year ago interpreted his last dream he calls on mystics and soothsayers and magicians instead of the holy word of God oh how frequently God proves himself to us yet we still persist in solving our own problems. Isn't it true? You say, I don't do that. I don't go to mystics. I don't go to soothsayers. Okay, but how often do you check the balance on your savings account? How many times a week do you return to your IRA to see where it's at? You see, isn't that kind of like our magician? It's kind of like our savior. It's what we turn to to make sure that, okay, my life's okay. Right? You see, friends, We do the same exact thing. It's just wrapped in different clothes. And when they couldn't solve his problem, as nothing in this world can, he calls on Daniel, who is, in verse 8, a man filled with the Spirit of God. A man, in verse 9, not troubled by uncertainties. It says that in the text, verse 9. Untroubled by any secrets. He's not moved by the threat of loss, whether it be financial or health. You see, he's unmoved, untroubled. And why? It's very simple. Nebuchadnezzar was his own Lord, and the Lord was Daniel's Lord. You see, friends, when we are trying to sort of manage our own life, to be our own hero, our own rescuer, we're our own Lord. We're our own savior. And we say, okay, what I, I, what I really don't need in life is lots of money, cars, and women. What I need is the approval and love of my heavenly father. And he gives it to me freely in Christ through his sacrifice. You see, when that becomes our savior, we're untroubled. We're untroubled by the threats of loss in this world. When we worship the wrong king, We only know fear and insecurity because if we worship a weak king that's fallible, our lives are always sort of on the threshold of trouble. Isn't that true? But when we serve a great king with all wisdom, knowledge, and power, we're safer. And just think about it like this. If you live in a house in a dangerous neighborhood and you've got no locks, you've got no alarm, there's no police station within 10 miles, and your house is filled with gold, aren't you going to feel like a little insecure? If you know criminals live all around you and you've got no protection, you don't even have a dog. Right? You, all you got is your two hands. You've got to make it work. You've got to protect it. Man, I, my knees would be knocking. I don't know about you. But you see, friends, when we have weak kings, we have insecurity. But when we have a strong king, we're fearless. When we, when we have an army of big brothers standing at the front door, armed to the teeth, we don't feel as threatened. Isn't that, wouldn't that be true? Mm-hmm. You see, friends, when we try to run our own lives, when we, try, when we think we can manage them, when we can, we can make ourselves matter, oh, it's a weak king. We never do it. We're always left wanting more, always left more con- confused and more insecure. But when the king of kings shows up and says, I made you for me, and I'm going to protect you, and nothing can take you out of my hands, then we begin to develop the confidence and faith and strength that God has always intended us for us to have. Right. Amen? Mm-hmm. Yet the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is stubborn as we are. 
He repeatedly uses Daniel's Babylonian name. Joe mentioned, Pastor Joe mentioned it, Belteshazzar. Why does he do that? Most of the book of Daniel, Daniel is referred to as Daniel. But suddenly in chapter 4, Belshazzar is getting shot all over the place by the king. What I think it is, and what other scholars think is going on, is he, Nebuchadnezzar, is trying to remind Daniel and himself, or he believes that Daniel is just one, one mighty man amidst a, a whole other army of other mighty men that have other gods. So in other words, he's putting Daniel on an equal playing field with all, of, all other religions, all other magicians, all other wise men. He's just one among many. So he calls him Belshazzar. It's a clue that the king is still insisting that his gods were at least equal to Daniel's. Also, you know what? He calls him the, the chief of the magicians. Do you notice that? The, Daniel, the chief of the magicians. Do you think Daniel would have called himself that? No. These magicians worshipped false gods. They claimed to have wisdom and they had none. He wasn't the captain of that army. Nebuchadnezzar sees Daniel as one among many enchanters that have access to some mysterious and spiritual phenomenon. And friends, all we need is the word of God. You don't need a fancy pastor that wears $1,000 sneakers. You ever see that video online? Preachers in sneakers? It's sickening. All these preachers now, they're wearing $1,000 sneakers. What? Who, why does... You know, you know how much that matters in, in, in the grand scheme of things? What kind of sneakers are on your feet? Friends, the word of God is alive. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't need gimmicks. We don't need tricks. Friends, you don't need a, you don't need, you don't need a certain charismatic guy to make your life work. You need the word of God. That's what we need. We need the word of God. The word of God is what endures. It's what's powerful. It's what continues to the end. It's what doesn't change. I change. I die. Right? We all change. And God, is, and, and I don't mean to sound like ungrateful. God has given gifts to the church. And he's gifted us in different ways. And we can appreciate each other for those gifts. But let's not get distracted from what it is that we really need. We don't need cheap magicians. We need the word of God. Isn't that true? But Nebuchadnezzar is still trying to control his own destiny in life and lot in life and had not yet seen that the Lord alone rules. But Yahweh, in spite of his stubbornness and thick head, is still after him. He's still sending him dreams. He hasn't quit on him. Oh, and friend, if you have a heartbeat in your chest, he's not quit on you. There is a grace he extends to you, and perhaps you'll hear his voice and not harden your heart and come to him. So God sends him a tormenting dream. An, an enormous tree that provided food and shade was suddenly cut down, and only a stump remains. Suddenly the stump becomes a man who apparently begins to lose his mind. Did you notice this? I'm going to cut down the tree. the tree. The tree was huge. provides food and shade for all these people and animals and birds. It cuts it down, and then all of a sudden, the, tr the, the tree that's fallen isn't a tree anymore. It's a man. And it's a man that starts to lose his mind and think that he was an animal. His heart was changed in verse 16 from that of a man and given the mind of an animal. This is called lycanthropy. It's actually a, a disease that some people suffer with. Some people actually think they're beasts. And he says, he, the, the dream basically says that whoever, the, the, the person who is suffering with this sort of beastly mind, this beastly mind takes over for seven times. Seven times will pass over him. Now, a lot of, a lot of Bible scholars have sort of wrestled with what that means. It, 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 my, my best guess in knowing scripture and knowing the Bible, seven is a time of completion or perfection. In other words, what the Bible is saying is, it will be over when it's over. When, when, when God decides that enough time has gone by, then it's complete, right? Oh, friends, how long we remain in the darkness. How long we've remained separate from God. How long we've remained our own lords and our own saviors. It's like we're animals. God didn't create you to, to save yourself, to prove yourself. And when we try to do this, it's like we have the mind of a beast. 
these seven times pass over all of us, when we thought our greatest good was found in all the aspirations of our heart, but they only resulted in confusion and further darkness. But, if you know the Lord, that time passed over. That's those seven times it ended when the light of Jesus Christ opened our blind eyes and we saw all of his goodness and love. And why is he doing this? Verse 17 tells us, the, in order that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. You see, friends, coming to sal what the Bible calls salvation requires that we realize that God is the center of the universe and we aren't. That we owe him everything and he owes us nothing because he's our creator. That's the beginning of salvation because when we start to realize that, we start to realize, oh, he's God and I'm not God. And then we start to realize, oh, I can see now all the, way, all the ways that I've, I've been going left and right and I've been so confused when God has, God has been there all along and I should have been going after him, but I've worshipped and loved everything but him. Right? The king's dream was simple. A powerful person or kingdom was about to be cut down and reduced to something unhuman. So <clears throat> God reigns. This is the message. God reigns. He sets up and pulls down. We're not over him. He's over us. Christianity begins there. Knowing this is the only way that we're going to stop trying to save ourselves. Stop being our own judge. Stop being our own savior. And look to God's sovereign grace. His unmerited favor as our only hope. You know, Mary prayed this. We, we, we heard this a little bit from her prayer in the, in the Magnificat. She says, he scatters the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He pulls down the mighty from their seat, and the rich he has sent empty away. So, so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Who's, who's the guy, though? Who, who, who is this dream about? He might have been thinking this. So he calls for Daniel. Uh, the message is kind of obvious. Really, it's simple. Someone great has fallen and become very low. So Nebuchadnezzar is curious. Who's the guy? It's kind of obvious, right? But that's why he calls in Daniel. On the surface, we think that it's about the king of Babylon, and it certainly is. But biblically, this is about all of us. We're the tree. We're the tree that needs to be humbled. God, because we've all worshipped everything but God throughout our lives. We've loved and trusted in so many things but him. The Bible calls that sin. When our dreams and aspirations have left us wanting, when our guilt is never relieved, when, when our loves continually disappoint us, we collapse and wonder, what's the point of it all? Now, Daniel clearly loves the king. Did you see he wishes that this was about his enemies and not about Nebuchadnezzar? But he has the courage. He looks the king square in the face and says, you're the man. The Bible is filled with classic confrontations. Moses and Pharaoh and John the Baptist and Herod and David and Goliath, right? I think of, though, the prophet Nathan confronting King David when King David was caught in murder, adultery, and lies. He looks him square in the eyes and unflinching says, David, you're the man. Make no mistake, King, you're the tree. You're the beast. And you need rescue. You need to turn from your sin. He wouldn't hold back the word of God because he didn't want to hurt the king's feelings or because maybe he was afraid for his life. This devastation that was about to come on the king was fixed by divine decree, and there was no way out of it. It says this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. It's basically saying God has decided to do this. It's meant to teach the king a lesson in order that the, most, that the living may know that the most high rules. You see, friends, he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know him but did you notice it also says in order that the living may know? 
You see, that's where now, oh, okay, this expands. See, this, this is a repeated event that didn't just happen, uh, happen to Nebuchadnezzar, but happens to all of us. When the trees of our lives fall down and collapse. You see, it happens by the sovereign decree of God so that we might know that the Most High rules and that we need Him and that He loves us. The living, that's you and I, friends. It's for those of us who are outside of faith in Christ or were outside of faith in Christ. We are felled trees. Friends, we are most free, most alive, most human when we realize that we are the image of God and that he is not the image of us. Right? We reverse it. We use God. He's Santa. He gets us out of a pickle. But he is not made in our image. Our image, we are made in his. And God will bring us sometimes trouble, sometimes discipline, sometimes problems, not to humiliate us, but so that we might see our greatest need is him. You see, friends, in the king, king Nebuchadnezzar's own, uh, own eyes, he was great. And we all aspire to be great, to be competent, to be admired, attractive, needed. We'll, you know, I'll be happy if, dot, 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 fill in the blank. So we make all of these demands out of life, and we start to use people around us so that we can get those things. Isn't that true? But what, we are just one small creation. We're not God. God is God. Oh, how so many of us, I think, live for our own sort of aspirations, live for ourselves. We build our own little kingdoms. We become a tree in some system that provides some sort of way that impresses people. And we boast, oh, how we've made it, how we've accomplished great things. But down will come baby, cradle and all phone call, a lost job, a divorce, a death. It comes crashing down and our tree doesn't seem to be as high as we thought anymore. It becomes weak and fragile and frail. You know what we need? We need a bigger tree. A better one. That bigger one, that better one is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we need to turn to him, just like Daniel tells the king to do. He says, break off your sins. Break off from them by being righteous and break off from your iniquities by showing mercy. See, friends, the king had a different king. He was his own king, so he used people to build his kingdom. And we all do the same thing. We do the same. We use people to prove ourselves. We use people to kind of, we, we use their praise to, to, to kind of give us our own sense of self-worth. And if they don't give us that praise, sometimes we, we become, we retaliate, we become angry, we fight. See, we're, do, we're doing the same thing. The, King Nebuchadnezzar oppressed the poor to become rich, but we, we, oppress the people, we oppress people in so many different ways. You see, whatever, if we have a, if, if, if there is something in our lives that we are heading, for, that we think is going to save us, prove us, like a marriage or, or a a high-paying job or something like this, that we are going to arrange the circumstance, people around us to help us get to that end. Isn't that true? We think we're just being innocent and that doesn't harm people, but oftentimes it does. Perhaps, though, there may be a lengthening of your prosperity, it says. Perhaps. Turn from your sin, O king, and perhaps you'll be saved. That perhaps, that's your chance. You got it right now. There's a, there's a perhaps. If you're watching online right now, you have a chance. You can come and get God, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, with all of his grace and riches and love. Or you can worship the things that your hands make. So the period of decline comes for Nebuchadnezzar in this fulfillment of his dream. <clears throat> he's brought low, but he's alive. God sent him dreams. God sent him word through Daniel. God sent him, sent him miracles in the fiery furnace. God loves the king. And it's interesting after Daniel warns the king that he is a fallen tree, that he's about to eat grass with cows. 
It says this in verse 29, at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, and the king spoke, saying, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for the royal dwelling, to my mighty power, and for the army of my, for, for the honor of my majesty? He just had this conversation with Daniel about how he's going to become a goat. And he's still doing this. He's still persisting in his own ignorance. Up to a year went by, and maybe perhaps he's noticing that he's not mooing yet. Maybe Daniel's wrong. Second um, Peter chapter 3 tells us that scoffers will come and say, Where is the promise of his coming? For all things continue as they were. But do not forget this one thing. The Lord is not slow, but is patient, not willing that any should perish. Is it possible that had Nebuchadnezzar simply repented at that point, that God wouldn't have had to reduce him to the point of an animal? Right? It's a dangerous thing to hear repeatedly, over and over again, the word of God and never respond to it, grow dull to it, to think, you know, they say that, but where is he? All things continue as they are. And Peter says, don't count God's slowness as sort of proof that he's not true to his word. Count his slowness as a mercy to you. He's giving you time to, to, to see his goodness and love and turn to him in faith so that at the end of time you won't be forever banished from his presence and from his love. We owe every moment, every heartbeat, every breath, every victory, every accomplishment to the sovereign hand of God. All good things that have happened to us in our life did not happen to us because we made it happen, but because the Lord allowed it, gave it to us. Yet this king disregards the warning and becomes again impressed with himself, hungry for the affirmation that his own accomplishments bring. Not acknowledging the good gifts of the creator to him. Friends, none of us achieve anything independent from God. None of us do. So God begins the stopwatch for Nebuchadnezzar. He says, okay, you made this choice. You're awesome. Everything happens good to you because you're so great. He says, okay, here we go. Bing. He begins the stopwatch, and he allows seven times to pass over the king. Did you notice the verse? Even as the words were in his mouth, God humbled him. The superhuman king becomes a subhuman beast. And friends, we're all something of a beast when we love and worship ourselves over the Lord Jesus Christ. And we walk independently from his love. But there's a miracle of grace that's revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and I hope it will and be in yours too. There is a restoration. It says in verse 34, at the end of that time, at the end of the time, Nebuchadnezzar woke up. His eyes were opened. The perhaps was answered. What would he do? Perhaps he would continue worshiping himself. Perhaps he would worship the Lord. So the answer to that, that question is now revealed because it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And friends, that is the perhaps that is issued to you. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Once he lifted his eyes to Babylon, now he lifts his eyes to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the King of Heaven. Once he honored himself and he became a beast, and now he honors the God of Heaven and his reason returns. Once he aimed to take the Lord's place, now he comes under the kind and loving rulership of his Lord. Once sin ruled his heart, and now the Lord ruled it. Friends, let's close with a few more words and then we'll be done. Our pride ruins things. And the king isn't alone in this. We're that tree. We're that felled tree. God is humbling us and has humbled us in one way or another throughout our lives. Not to hurt us, but so that perhaps 
he'll come and get him. He casts us down from glory so that he might set us up to a better glory. John Calvin, again, let me quote him one more time, once wrote that the suffering sin brings by the hand of God is meant to lead us to repentance, whose sole end is to restore us to the image of God that has been disfigured and all but obliterated. You see, he's drawing us out of our darkness so that we can become the true image of God, who he's really made us to be. And the king finally sees it and confesses it to Babylon, his subjects. That God is the only sovereign king. All of us are dust. Nothing God has done is unjust. And he gives grace to the humble. It says this, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? This is the confession of a pagan despot who has become a humble servant of Yahweh. I hope that you will too. Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, for your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you indeed rule over heaven and earth, that nothing in our lives is accidental, that you're drawing us, that you've revealed yourself to us over and over again. God, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would turn to you and trust you and love you. God, we thank you, Lord, for this testimony, this ancient testimony of a man who thought he was the man, but realized that he was just a man that was under the loving rule of a great Lord and King. God, we thank you for creating us in your image. I pray, Lord, that we would love and trust and follow you, that we would submit, surrender our lives to you and trust you with it. God, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, cry out to him now. God, I'm a sinner. I've been far from you. You've, you've been Lord and creator over all things. And I've, I've taken my own way. I've done my own thing. And none of it works. It's a felled tree. So you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for my place, in my place for my sin. So that I could be raised to new life and crowned with an eternal crown. Oh God, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that needs to chop a tree down, that they would just do it themselves, that they would take off their own crown and come and get a better one. Friend, cry out to God, God, save me, I'm a sinner. I need you. Jesus died for my sin in my place. He's my Savior, my Lord. I want to start praising you rather than myself. Friend, if that's you, come and get him. Don't stop. If you feel God is turning your heart in that sort of repentance today, I want you to come and talk to me. I would love to pray with you. God, for the rest of us, help us to continue to remember that you are Lord of heaven and earth, and that we can trust you even in the difficult times. In Jesus' name.